episode 10 of The Build. We made it. It's 10 episodes. We did it. The show is over. The Canadians have won the Stanley Cup, just as I promised they would, in 10 whole episodes. Just kidding. They're in 31st place, and people are upset that they might catch the New Jersey Devils for some reason in the draft lottery standings. But we'll get to that later. It's kind of boring. It's not really all that fun. Let me adjust some audio here. How's that? Is that better? Yeah, a little bit more pop. Uh, welcome back. I hope those celebrating had a nice Easter weekend. Um, I, th- I hope those celebrating like I do um, have a great Monday evening when they go to their local um, pharmacy, drugstore, grocery store, and they buy all the candy for 50% off. That's the best part to me. Um, I'm a Cadbury cream egg goblin, so I just kind of eat those all the time. Um, probably, I probably eat more Cadbury cream eggs in a year than I do regular eggs in a year. But the numbers haven't been checked on that. Uh, I spent the weekend petting dogs and building Legos. So that was pretty cool. I built the, uh, the, the Mario question mark block in the span of two days. So that was pretty fun. It's a really, really neat piece of uh, video game history. Big fan of that. Um, I had so much fun that I almost forgot about the the absolute disgrace that the National Hockey League Players Association is. Um, before I get started, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not going to get into any of the, the, the gritty specifics about the Kyle Beach case, but a bit of a content warning now, I'll give you some time to, to click out of this to pause it. Um, before you pause it, go down to the description, it'll show you when you can pick back up. Where, when I'm done talking about it, go to that time in the podcast. You'll be okay. Um, I want to give you guys that time. Because not only that, but I, I'm sure there's people who don't want to talk about it. But um, I'm going to because the NHLPA is a disgrace. Um, on Thursday last week, the Players Association, so the player reps for all 32 NHL franchises, voted on whether or not to release the findings of an investigation into the union and its leadership as it handled the Kyle Beach situation from 2010. Um, The players voted to release that information. Um, Those results were supposed to be released on their website on Friday morning. And then in a shocking twist, the Players Association offices in Toronto lost power until 4.30 on the Friday before a holiday weekend. I know that they said that there was a, a power outage. Like... You, okay, hockey aside, you should be skeptical of any kind of news release that comes out after 3 o'clock on a Friday, ever. That's like, to me, like media literacy 101. If you see some kind of press release or news blast that comes out late on a Friday afternoon, you should know they're trying to bury something. Something's trying to, someone is trying to get something lost in the shuffle at the end of the week as people prepare for their weekend. So what did they try to hide? In in the report that or I should say in the 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 language that the NHLPA released on Friday afternoon in response to that report being released, you can read the entire report on the NHLPA's website. Um, but the part that matters to me was in the the images that they posted on Twitter. And I'll read one verbatim. In sum, after a thorough examination of the contemporaneous record, the policies and practices in place at the union at the time, and the recollections of each 
of the parties to the contacts with the NHLPA or the SABH program, I believe that's the Substance Abuse and Behavioral Health Program, concerning the handling of Beach's reports, Beach's warnings about Aldrich were not addressed on account of miscommunication and misunderstanding rather than individual or systemic failure. The findings telling you that, getting to that conclusion, the conclusion being we didn't do anything about Kyle Beach's warnings about Aldrich because of a miscommunication or a misunderstanding, and it's not because we did anything wrong. Miscommunication and misunderstanding from your union when it comes to something as heinous as this is a systemic failure. The fact that, you know, you can you can point the finger at Don Fair, which I think everybody is, and he's going to, I think as um, Pierre Lebrun said, he's going to orchestrate his exit in the near future. There are too many people involved for this to just be a simple misunderstanding or miscommunication that everybody misses. I don't buy it. If your union is not equipped to properly handle the abuses of your employer, whether that be something that happened like with Kyle Beach or, you know, as much as I hate defending the guy, Vander Kane, right now he's in a meeting in New York because the Sharks terminated his contract in a way that the NHLPA is finding to be against the rules. If they are not equipped to handle the abuses of your employer, they are not a union. They do not protect the players. It is a farce. I've I've rarely gotten very emotional on this show, but reading that report, my first thought was, no wonder the players voted for this to be released. It doesn't say anything. It says nothing. Frank Saravalli tweeted after reading the report, also significant, another agent, Joe Resnick, had a 14-minute call with Don Fair the same day Resnick sent an email about Brad Aldrich, and neither Resnick nor Fair have any recollection of the call, which was unearthed in the report by phone records. What did they discuss? The fact that this report came in and they are leaving that... The report came in and there's no like written record of how everything was handled. That is a systemic failure. Like think like if you think about like if you had something like this happen at your job and you reported it to a manager or somebody at your job and they didn't do anything. So you went to your union and you told your union about it and none of them took notes and none of them filled out any paperwork and there was no documentation of your of your report you'd probably start to to question whether or not that union has your best interests in mind so i have no other way to go about this than to think that they covered this up that the nhlpa was working in a way to keep this from becoming public knowledge. If the players can't trust their union with protecting them from actual physical abuse from their employers and the people that their employers employ that aren't players, how can they trust them to, to negotiate on their behalf? I don't, I don't, I, I, these aren't, these aren't apples to apples comparisons, but remember that tweet last week that everybody dunked on from 
um, uh, what's his name there, uh, Pronger, Chris Pronger, talking about how the players have to pay escrow and they have to do all this stuff. Well, it's no, it's no question, it's no wonder why they have to pay such high escrow. Their union sucks. You, if you look at the numbers that the players' union has negotiated on their behalf when it comes to escrow, it's awful. They're paying like 20% in escrow this season. And next season it's 10, and then it gets down to 6% after that. Well, with a union who doesn't care about them, it's no question that they're that that this sort of thing is happening. It's shameful. Escrow, Olympic participation, hockey-related revenue, all really trivial things, but they can't get the foundational parts of this down pat. If you're being abused by your employer, your union needs to step in, and they didn't do anything. Shameful. It's a shameful organization. It's it, If I were an NHL player, I would be voting to absolutely tear that organization down and start over. It's horrific. And Don Fair should, should be ashamed of himself. And everybody involved should be ashamed of themselves. All right, bring that'll be the end of that. Bringing everybody back in now. If you skip that, sorry. Just making a note of when I when I stop that. Let's move on to some lighter topic. Um, Carey Price came back. That was pretty cool. Um, this is what I really wanted to talk about this week. That's why last week was such a short episode is because I wanted to just talk about that, but he didn't come back in time. Um, he came, Carey Price, on Wednesday after the Canadians played Columbus, um, he apparently told Brendan Gallagher that he was playing on Friday. Um, I joked that he saw how how well the Canadians played against Columbus, and I used the term well lightly, um, and decided he needed to do something. Um, so Friday night against the Islanders, he makes his return. I was actually on Game Over Montreal that night with um, Andrew Berkshire and my buddy Scott Matla from Lockdown Canadians. Um, it was loads of fun, as always, despite the result. But we'll get to the result in a little bit. Um, leading up to the game, I thought it was funny. There wasn't a ton of fanfare around it, at least digitally. Like, Twitter wasn't all about the return. Like, people were mentioning it. Like, we knew he was starting. But it wasn't, like, this thing where every minute was filled with Carey Price returning. I think that's just... The vert that you know, by virtue of the Canadians being as bad as they are this year, like it doesn't, yeah, he's coming back, but it, it's not going to mean anything in the, the long term or at least in the short term impact on the Canadians. Um, but once the once I turned on the game and TSN showed him taking the ice during Fix You, um, and during the starting lineup announcement, which kudos to them for showing that, that was really, really cool. Um, that you could tell like the the building was ready to erupt it's a shit like if the canadians had scored early that place would have would have just absolutely exploded um i was watching from home i'm on the couch watching just in in awe watching this guy come back after everything that he's been through um and i'm not going to lie i got choked up like it was it was a really really emotional moment that we have not had a lot of since the cup final run like my fiance is trying to show me 
Nick Suzuki's socks. He, he had Carey Price on his socks as he got to the arena. And I'm just like trying not to look at her because I'm just fighting tears the entire time. Um, it was it was it was emotional. And it's it's a reminder that sports are supposed to make us feel this way. Like I, there's been a lot of anger and frustration with the way that this season has gone. The last few seasons with that that run from May to July excluded. It was not it was really nice to feel that again. Um, I hope I, I hope we get feelings like that under better better circumstances moving forward. Um, unfortunately, the game didn't go the way that anyone would have wanted. A three nothing loss to the Islanders, where the Canadians vastly outplayed them. But I think for the first time this season, they got goalied. Um, I mentioned it on before we started recording game over. Um, you know, the Canadians haven't been in a position to be goalied this year because they've been bad. Bad teams don't get goalied often. By getting goalied, I mean the only reason they lost is because the other goalie, Ilya Sorokin, played out of his mind. Um, and on Game Over Montreal on Friday, um, you know, we talked, one of the viewers asked how we feel about Price moving forward now that he has a game back under his belt and we can kind of judge from that. And I was very, I'm very pragmatic, I think, in the sense that I don't know. Like, yeah, he came back, he played 60 minutes of hockey, and he faced 19 shots and stopped 17. You know, like, it's, I'm not ready to, I don't think Price is ready to declare that he's 100% back yet. You listen to the way that he's speaking after the fact, like, he doesn't, he doesn't know how this goes. Like, he needs to be in better shape moving well, not in better shape that's not the right way to say that but he needs to be he needs to take care of himself in order to, to have a little bit more longevity um that's the goal here the goal isn't just playing the goal is playing long and playing you know well enough he talked about not wanting to be a burden which i think like broke my heart a little bit that the guy who everybody else on the team was a burden for him at some point right like I think about those 14, 15 Canadians where he was just a god and they would score two goals a night and they would win most of them. Um, but I, and I'm worried, I'm worried that like we've seen this movie before that like we've had price return games in the past. Usually they're earlier on in the year because he gets hurt towards the end and takes the summer to rehab. But we've seen this. He comes back, he plays a bit, Gets hurt again. Sometimes it's stupid stuff, like he slips on a puck. Or last year, remember, he got a concussion because I think Leon Dreisaitl bumped him. Um, they need to move forward tentatively. They need to be careful with him. Um, I talked about it before on Game Over. Carey Price cannot be the sole determining factor of whether or not Carey Price plays. Like Martin St. Louis said, you know, when Carey is ready, he plays. When Kerry tells us he's he's okay, he plays. I'm so that can't be the that can't be how this works moving forward at all. It's just not it's not a responsible way to go about this, because Kerry's always been the one to push himself, and he admitted as much. He said, you know, he would come back from injury and he would push and push and push, and then that's when he was getting inflammation. I always think about other think about other athletes too. This isn't a Kerry Price specific problem. I talked about it on Game Over. Tiger Woods. He played the Masters, was it last week? A few weekends ago. He played the Masters 11 months after having a horrific car accident where he almost lost his leg. 
And he said, you know, I'm playing because I think I can win this tournament. And sure enough, he plays a pretty good round of golf on the first day. And then he completely falls apart. And as he leaves the course on the third day, he can barely walk. Like there's he he's another athlete that's kind of like a freak. Like they're all kind of freaks. <laughs> they think that they can do a lot more than they can. I used to be a Washington football team supporter. Even before the name change, it's not something I'm proud of. I'm, I don't subscribe to that idea anymore. Um, but Robert Griffin III, their quarterback, when I was in high school, he his rookie season, he was electric, and he hurt his knee. And then they brought him back out there, and the turf crumbled underneath his feet. And he blew out his knee, and he was really never the same again. And, you know, he was telling them, I'm fine, I'm fine, get me back in. And the medical team was saying, no, you're not fine. And then the offensive coordinator was getting him back in. So, you know, it's, you have to, you have to, you have to play a fine line here. You have to understand that the player is going to dictate how they feel. Like, Carey Price is the only one who's going to say how Carey Price feels. But I think you have to have a plan for him every every, every basically through, for the rest of his career. You have to have a plan that keeps his health in mind. Um, the Canadians have Carey Price for four more years after this one is done. They need to get the most out of that deal or at the very least keep him healthy. Um, as Elliot Friedman alluded to in the past, something we've talked about on this show, they need to, th- th- him playing a game this year makes a trade more likely. Not imminent not you know the 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 most likely scenario but more likely than not or more likely than than he was the other day to be traded acquiring teams are going to want to know if he's okay and also I, I know people might not want to hear this but like at the end of his career let's say he's got a year left and he's just he's healthy but he just doesn't have it you can only buy him out if he's healthy Buy, a buyout is a very, very low option for them. Like, I don't think that's one that they're, the Canadians should entertain all that much. But his health, all of this to say that every option for Carey Price moving forward has to be centered around his health and his body's ability to do the things he needs to do. Um, yeah, they can use LTIR, but I don't think they want to do that all that much. They're already trying to move Weber's contract. That all said... That's like the gross business side of this fan side of it. It was great seeing him come back. I think it was important for the psyche of the Canadians team, the players, the fans, the, 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 you know, the coaches, all of them. I think seeing that come back, seeing the bell center that loud, um, I think that means something. Um, so let's pump the brakes on, on him being back to his old self. I, there's six games left. I think he should play three at most. I know they want to try to get him a win, I'd imagine, but don't like he can't play five of those six games. It's not a it can't be a reality for them. Especially in a lost season. Give him the summer to rest. Try it again in the fall. All right. Let's talk about defense a little bit. Um, I've talked about the forwards a lot over the last the first nine episodes of this show. And while I've complained about the defense, I've never really properly talked about it. And in this episode, I will, spoiler alert, I'm not going to properly talk about it, but I will get a little bit deeper into, like, what I think is going wrong. Um, at Giesbrechta on Twitter, sorry if I, if I mispronounced that, um, and I, we've talked a lot about the Romanov-Savard pairing recently, and 
he wanted to see why that pairing is even a thing. And he puts it well, I'll quote, I'll quote him directly, because they do not work well together and are somehow absolutely inseparable. So I looked into that and it turns out he's right. They are kind of, since Martin St. Louis took over, they are one of Montreal's top three pairings by ice time. Um, when St. Louis took over, it felt like the Habs offense got a little kick in the rear. You know, Caulfield and Suzuki really taking off offensively at that point helped, whether that be just on the power play or at evens. Um, the defense, I think, was simplified, right? Like, they went from whatever confusing structure or system Dom Ducharme had in place, and they simplified it to mostly man-on-man. Um, while it's simplified, and they, they are oftentimes able to make very simple plays and very simple coverages, they haven't taken many strides in a positive direction. And by positive direction, I mean out of their own defensive zone. Um, players still look really confused on D-zone coverage. The transition game still doesn't exist. Uh, I think there's two reasons for that. Personnel and strategy, which is a real chicken and egg problem for the Mark Bergeron built Canadians, which I'll get into a little bit later. Um, a lot of the problems with the defense, too, I think, is just they've lost a lot of their key parts. Say what you want about Ben Sherratt. He played a lot. He played in a lot of different situations. They played him everywhere. Kulak, too. Played a lot. Played in a lot of situations. Those are two spots on the left side that guys have to, like, move up and play higher in the lineup. I think that's where Romanov slides in. Like, he was playing... I, th- I want to say he was playing, like, third defense pair minutes for most of the year, and then those two are gone, and now he's a second or top pairing defenseman. Um... There's, an, there's a piece in The Athletic from Arpin Basu and Marc Antoine Godin about, I think it's just the Canadian's notebook. And the first bit is about Alexander Romanov and how when he played, when they played the, the Leafs at home last, um, they matched Romanov up against Austin Matthews uh, of the Maple Leafs and he kind of shut him down. One game does not make a pattern, but you know, it was kind of impressive to see him play a ton and, and shut down that top, that top line. Um, but I mentioned it a little bit ago since February 9th, you know, the, I've, I looked at the, the defense pairings for the Canadians, um, and I sorted them by five on five ice time. And I only considered the players who are still with the Canadians. So no Sherat and no Kulak. And here's what I had in order. Uh, in order of average five on five ice time per game, because there's some disparity, there, there's some differences between games played. Um, so, Petrie and Edmondson rank first in in time on ice per game, five on five, um, eleven games played, about thirteen and a half minutes a game. Second is Savard Romanov, fourteen games played, about twelve fifteen a game, and then the third pairing, Weidman and Schudeman, um, seventeen games played, about uh, about eight and a half minutes a game. After that third pair, the next highest ice time by pairing is Weidman and Clegg with about 95 minutes. So I feel rather confident saying that those are the top pairings for Montreal since St. Louis took over. And obviously, Barron and Harris being injured impacts that a little bit. Um, and I think that Edmondson-Petrie pairing would be higher if Edmondson had just played more. They haven't; He hasn't played a ton. Um that Petrie Edmondson pair, it has its warts. Like it's not perfect. Petrie's game this year hasn't been perfect. Edmondson is, is coming into an absolute dumpster fire of a season. Like I kind of, it's an impossible situation for him. I think he's handled it well. Um, 
Petrie has been a bit better at transitioning the puck out of his zone as of late. Uh, we saw him pick up two assists against Washington on Saturday. The same can't be said about the Romanov-Savard pair. I know that the possession numbers and the, the you know the, any of those advanced metrics for the Canadians this year, I've said it before, I'll say it again. You can throw most of them in the dumpster, but these stand out as particularly bad. Um, five on five expected goals for 43%. It's the lowest um, of those three pairings. This one was tough. Five on five scoring chances for they're on the ice for only 37% of their, of the scoring chances. Um, I should, I should rephrase that when they are on the ice, the Canadians, <clears throat> excuse me, the Canadians only get 37% of the five on five scoring chances. That means they're giving up 63% of the scoring chances when they're on the ice. Like it's just, it, that's not, as far as I'm concerned, it's a non-option. It's not an option for a competitive team. The Canadians can use them all they want right now. That's fine. And I've, I've harped on this play that I'm about to talk about way too much. This will be the last I mention it, I promise. I tweeted about it. I talked about it on Game Over. I won't talk about, talk about it again. Columbus game, last Wednesday. The first goal Columbus scored. Savard has the puck in his own zone. There's not a ton of pressure. He has an outlet in Romanov. Caulfield sees this and decides I'm going to do what Cole Caulfield always does under Martin St. Louis, that is. And I'm going to fly the zone. I'm leaving. I'm going to stretch the defense out and back them up. Maybe get a stretch pass from one of those guys, but at least I'm buying them more space. By backing up the defense, you let Romanov have a, a, a little bit of an easier time getting out of his zone. Savard has to make a 10-foot pass to Romanov with no pressure, and he misses him, and he, they turn the puck over. At that point, coverage is broken because Caulfield is gone. He comes back and is covering the wrong side, as others have pointed out. He also gets interfered with for like four seconds before the goal happens. But he leaves the goal scorer open, Caulfield, he leaves the goal scorer open on the other side of the ice. They score. The The Sportsnet broadcast, like, uh, I believe it was Jamal Mayers, they blamed Caulfield for the goal, but, and while, yes, he he's, he's in the wrong spot, He's in the wrong spot because he trusted his teammate to make a 10-foot pass, and they didn't. I think it's understandable that Cole Caulfield can expect an NHL defenseman, a veteran NHL defenseman, to make a 10-foot pass. That play is sort of a microcosm of what's holding the Canadians back. And that's and it's something that is, one, systemic. Like, there's not a pairing on this team that does that play well, that can that I trust to be able to make that play. And two, it's not going to be easy to fix because I don't see, unless like Harris and Barron make huge strides moving forward, like it's not a short, there's no short-term solution for it outside of spending money on like a, a good transition defenseman. Um, I, I think that sort of play outlines a lot of the issues that we're going to see with this team that need to be fixed. And Suzuki and Caulfield's underlying numbers over the past few weeks, they look awful. And I suspect a large part of that is because their defense cannot clear the puck in any meaningful way. And I think as Andrew Berkshire pointed out on Twitter, Lekkonen was eating a lot of those matchups for a while. And as a defensive player, he'd be really good at him. But with Lekkonen gone... Suzuki and Caulfield are getting are just they're they're facing other teams top lines every night so when when 
they're not strong, all that strong defensively. I know Suzuki is, but the the defense behind them needs to pick up the slack, and they're not. I know Caulfield's not good defensively. I'm not asking him to be. I'm asking him to score 40 goals a year. That's his job. Romanov and Savard and everybody else on that defense, they need to be able to stop the other team and move the puck the other way. So why are Romanov and Savard still together despite the the awful result? And, I mean, Saturday against Washington was something else. Like, it was becoming funny how, like... They were on the ice for like every goal against that game. I think they, I think Washington scored seven and they were on the ice for five or six of them. Not all their fault. Some of them were, not all of them. But it kind of, it, it, they, they keep putting them in situations where they cannot succeed. And I know there's like this, there's been this like weird presence on Twitter. With, with, you know, people in the mainstream Montreal media who are talking about, like, oh, man, he's taken really big strides in his development. I haven't seen it with Romanov. I'll get into it a little bit later. First, so why are Romanov and Savard still together? The first, I think, is just the circumstances on the team. Petrie and Edmondson are going to be that true top pairing for the Canadians. Um, they're going to eat big minutes against top lines. They were a pair all season last season. They're, like, the only... Uh, consistent thing that they know that that Marty St. Louis looks at and he goes I know I have a pairing there um I think it also helps Edinson ease back into the lineup instead of playing like with a young a young guy um and Petrie is gone next year so it doesn't make sense to try him with a young guy who when Petrie won't be around next year um you notice how Petrie's not on the power play anymore like they're they're the Petrie era in Montreal is is uh having the curtain closed on it Second, you know, Weidman and Schoenman, they're not they're not good enough for the second pairing. Neither are Barron and Harris, at least not yet. They might get there. Not yet. You don't want to just throw them out there and have them drown. And that leaves Romanoff and Savar on the second pairing, which I think was, was supposed to be designed in a way that would help Romanoff because he's played his offside a lot. So putting Savard with him lets him go back to his natural left side. Like he was playing with... He played a lot of the wrong side at some point uh, last year and into this year. Now he's on the left side. So first, circumstance. Second, their contracts. Both Savard and uh, Romanov, barring trade, offer sheet, whatever, they're both going to be here next year. So I think the Canadians are might be looking at it as like, well, maybe this is something we have for next season. I hope they're not because it's just not working. Um a lot of that is the way Savard plays. Like he's not a very I don't I don't really like a ton of the the, the plays that he makes with the puck. I think he he looks lost out there just like everybody else. Um, but a lot of it too is I don't know how much of the Romanov hype is left. So I'll talk a little bit about you know I mentioned it earlier like where Romanov is headed. Um, I think we all had really high hopes for him. Um, you know, coming out of that World Junior where he was like the best defenseman in the tournament, uh, he signed with Montreal before the bubble. They couldn't play him. He burned a year of the deal despite not playing a game. It was a very, looking back on it, it's kind of stupid. Um, like, I don't know why the Canadians did that. You know, now they have to make a decision on him. They're using him in a ton of high leverage situations. He's not doing well, but they're using him there. And now they have to sign him. They have to extend him after this year or trade him. Um, 
But I think at this point, like, in at this point in his development, with everything that we've seen um, that he's able to do, that he's not able to do, I think he tops out as a third-pairing defenseman. He feels very Alexi Emelin-esque, you know? Um, he's a decent skater. He knows how to throw a hit. And that's really, that's it for the things that I would consider to be developed or nearly developed. Although with the skating, you can always improve your skating, I feel. Offensively, like, I know people think that he was going to be this offensive dynamo showing up in Montreal. Like, part of it, too, is just by virtue of him being from Russia. And people went, oh, he's he's Markov. That's Markov. Like, it's he's not. In 127 games... He has four goals on 174 shots. That's he. That's 2.3% shooting. If I had something that worked 2.3% of the time, I would say I have a thing that does not work. And next time you watch him play, watch where those shots are coming from. They're often weak wrist shots or half slap shots from just inside the blue line that stay on the ice and hit the goalie in their pads or sometimes maybe hit them in the chest. He's not shooting to score. There's never really traffic when he gets those shots on net. He's not shooting for a deflection. It seems like a lot of the time his shot is a safety valve. Like he's got no other option, so he just throws it at the net. Maybe that's something that can be rounded back into his game. And I say that to say that he's only 22. It is, again, another instance of the last regime in Montreal rushing a player into the NHL. Alexander Romanov should have spent some time in Laval. But a lot of that, too, is his contractual status. Like, if he's... The KHL players, they, they can go back to the KHL, I believe. I don't think they have to play in the AHL. I think they get treated like the same as the European clause. Um, ask Vitaly Kraftsov that for the Rangers, who refused assignment to the AHL and went back to Russia. So that's to say that like maybe working with Adam Nicholas, like he can he can really round out his game and become a more dynamic defenseman. But like I can't help but th- but think that like this is what the last regime wanted him to be. Like un- think about the way that Mark Bergman built defenses under his three coaches under Michel Therrien, under Claude Julien, under Dom Ducharme. They wanted big, bruising defensemen who were tough to play against. Weber, Sherratt, Edmondson, now Savard, um, Douglas Murray. Like, there's a bunch of, like, disasters in there. Not all of them, but some. And it oftentimes comes at the expense of the guy who they can tr- who is trying to move the puck offensively. P.K. Subban. Uh, Nathan Bullier, who I know ultimately didn't t- turn out to be much, but they didn't give him a shot. Mikhail Sergachev got traded because they thought, you know, they, they thought they were getting a piece back in Jonathan Drouin, who was better, but that's a defenseman who could have helped them right now. It's a defenseman who the Canadians up and down their lineup do not have a, a comparable to. So, this is why I say it's sort of a chicken and egg scenario. Did they want to play that way and they went and got the guys that played that way? Or did they did they play that way because they had those guys already? 
I, I would say it's the first one that they wanted to play that way and they went and got guys that could play that way. And that explains why Romanov might not have had that much of like an out- offensive output with the Canadians. I don't think that that was part of why they had him around. I think they wanted him to be another bruising, checking defenseman who would be tough to play against in front of the net. Which is a real shame because it seemed like he was going to be, or at least he had the tools to be something more than that. Ultimately, with Savard and Romanov, you might as well keep them together the rest of the way. Like, you do risk damage and confidence, though. Like, it couldn't have been fun for them to fish the puck out of their net six times. But I think at the end, they realized that this is all a write-off. Like, none of this really matters all that much. Um, have them work with with Nicholas, both, both of them. It couldn't hurt Savard to get a little bit of tune-up, but... Romanoff is still so young. You you can you can try that, um, but I think this is a this is a larger issue than just this pairing or this defense core. It's the way that this this organization has decided to view defense over the last decade. We can we can earnestly say decade at this point. That defense still plays like it's two thousand four. On the flip side, I'm I'm very optimistic that Jeff Gorton understands how defense needs to be played now. Like you look at the defensemen he acquired, either drafted or signed them. I know Adam Fox is the one I'm thinking of. He signed just because Adam Fox really wanted to go there. But he looked at Adam Fox and said, Yes, please come here, come play here. But Keandre Miller, he drafted. A very smooth skating defenseman who's also still pretty big and pretty tough to play against. And he's got a flair for offense. Niels Lundqvist is another one. I got to see him in the AHL this year. Very, very good. Smooth skating defenseman. Offensively minded defenseman. He seems to value a mobile defenseman. Montreal should do everything in their power to revolutionize the way that they think about defense. Not only in personnel, but in, in, in strategy. You know, I don't know if that means Luke Richardson has a, has a job with this team anymore because you think about how long he's been here and how long the defense has struggled. It, they kind of go hand in hand. But that's a that's a that's a thing we will see play out over the the next few months, years, until they have a defense that that models or that uses the modern NHL as a model. That's all I have on defense. I've got one more thing to talk about today. And it's the tank. Um, you go on Twitter during a game, whenever the Canadians score a goal, you will see a certain part of this fan base get upset that they scored a goal. There's a certain level of anxiety over the Canadians draft lottery position as the season is wrapping up. Um, I, I joked that they're doing their best carry price tribute by holding on to that 31 spot in the standings. Um, folks, people seem to think that the Canadians they have six games left that the Canadians are going to win all six of their games that they have left. And they completely ruin the tank. Could that happen? Sure. Is it likely? No. And I know that because I've watched this team play all season. They're not good guys. Like, yeah, they could get, they could get hot. I, I don't think that that's a reality. As I said, Montreal is in 31st place. They have played 76 games, meaning they have six remaining. Here are the bottom five teams in the league. 
32nd, Arizona, seven games remaining, so a game in hand at, on Montreal, 49 points, two points lower than Montreal, 21 regulation and overtime wins. That's four more than the Canadians. Montreal, as I said, in 31st, six games remaining, 51 points, 71 regulation and overtime wins. In 30th, so the third best lottery odds, Seattle, eight games remaining, so two games in hand on Montreal, 54 points, so three points higher than the Canadians, and like Arizona, 21 regulation and overtime wins. That's important, and I'll talk about why. Philadelphia is in 29th, so the fourth highest lottery spot. Six games remaining, 57 points. They have six points on the Canadians, 22 regulation overtime wins. New Jersey's in fifth last, so 28th. Seven games remaining, 59 points, 23 regulation and overtime wins. So, let's talk about them catching Arizona. Montreal needs Arizona to be two points better than them for the Habs to have the highest odds for the first overall pick. It's not impossible, but Arizona's playing mostly playoff teams the rest of the way, and they are impressively bad. Like, they got mopped by Calgary on Saturday night. Like, that team was designed to be bad, and they're doing it well. The good news is Montreal will likely have the regulation and overtime tiebreaker on any of these teams. I say tiebreaker in the sense that they'll be worse than them. Like, <laughs> it didn't really... You hear, like, how bad this team is and how bad this season is all the time. It didn't really dawn on me until I looked at this. They've won 17 games that didn't involve the shootout. They, I'll, they've played 76, and they've won 17 in regulation or overtime. It's insane to think about. Anyway, this for some reason, this fan base seems to think that the Canadians have a realistic chance of finishing in 28th. So lapping the New Jersey Devils, who are currently eight points up on the Canadians with a game at hand. It's not going to happen. Think of it in think of it as if they were in a better position. So the Devils have the eight spot in the conference and the Canadians had the same eight point gap and the Devils had a game at hand. I would consider the Canadians to be eliminated from playoff contention. Right? If they were eight points back, possibly 10, I consider them to be a non-factor when it comes to the playoffs. So why is it that we can't use that same logic when determining that the Canadians cannot catch New Jersey for 28th? So Montreal will finish no lower than 29th. Okay? Let's keep going. They are six points back of the Flyers for 29th. That means if the Flyers go 500 the rest of the way... Montreal cannot pass them without just about every game being a regulation or overtime win. So you're asking them to win six straight in, and none of them in shootouts. They're not doing that. First of all, I, even if the Flyers don't go 500, maybe they go a little bit lower than 500. Montreal and Philadelphia have a game against each other later on. That is, you're you're asking Montreal to become superhuman for no reason. Like for some, they just haven't been able to do this entire year. They are three points back of Seattle for 30th. I'll be honest, this is the furthest back I think Montreal can slide. 
even then, the numbers are on the Canadian side. Seattle has two games at hand, so that three points, you could talk yourself into actually being seven if Seattle wins both of them. If Seattle goes 500, Montreal can only afford to drop one point in the standings, and they'll need more regulation and overtime wins to claim the tiebreaker, which, as a reminder, they're four regulation and overtime wins behind them. They're not catching them. At least in 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 that in that scenario where they go 500, they could. In all honesty, like Seattle's really bad. Like they could also fall back, and Montreal might pass them. I don't think it's all that likely. I think that's the highest that they go, though. I think that the highest they go is 30th, which is the third place in the lottery. That said, I think 32nd is still in play. If Arizona wins their game at hand on the Canadians and they match the Habs the rest of the year. So Arizona wins that game at hand and then in the remaining games, they both play the exact same. Montreal wins the top lottery odds because they are the the regulation overtime win tiebreaker is so far in the Coyotes uh, advantage at that point. All of this to say the Canadians have six games left. Minnesota. Philadelphia, Ottawa, Boston, New York Rangers, and Florida. Are there four wins in that in those six games? I don't think so because one, the Canadians are bad, and two, some of those teams are very good. In fact, all of them are above the Canadians in the standings. So you in order for them to do that, you're you're calling for an upset every night. So let's go through that. Minnesota. That's probably a loss on Tuesday night. Philadelphia. That one's one that might be a win. I think one point is definitely in play. Ottawa. Same thing. Maybe a win. One point definitely in play. Boston. Probably a loss. I don't think they're beating Boston this year. The Rangers. Probably a loss. I don't think they're beating the Rangers. And then they finish with Florida, which is almost certainly a loss. So all of that to say Montreal might win two games the rest of the season. And that, I think, is being optimistic. That puts them one point up on Seattle, but Seattle has games left too. And games in hand. So the moral of all of this is to relax. We can't control any of this, and it does the Canadians no good to go out and try to lose. I said this on Locked on Canadians, and it's, it's, this is the first season where there's, where a team will finish 32nd. Montreal is going to finish in a place that starts with a three. That, that, I, I honestly think 30th is the lowest they'll get, the highest they'll get. This is where my head's at. It's tough to, it's tough to tell what's up, what's down. And after that, the rest is literally ping pong balls. <laughs> like you remember when the uh, the bubble happened, and then they took all of the teams who were in the bubble but lost their qualifying round, and they put them into a, the, they put one ball into the thing, and we saw Toronto's ball go up into the thing and bounce around, and then bounce out, and the Ranger ball went up. Like, that's what we're, that's what we're depending on. The Canadians can still, can finish in first 
in the lottery. They can have the best lottery odds. It's still an 80% chance that they don't win that pick. The field, you know, you know, people, you know, you, you can bet against the field. You can pick the field. Like when it comes to who's going to win MVP, is it Connor McDavid or the field? The field in this case has a much higher chance. So all of this to say, I can't find the energy to be anxious about any of this. And that's saying a lot because I'm anxious about literally everything. Relax. Enjoy the last six games. There will be days in August where you're wishing you're watching hockey and you're not. Enjoy these. Let the ping pong balls fall where they might. And that's it. I'm done for the day. And actually, I'm done for two weeks. There won't be an episode next week. I will be out of town and not thinking about hockey next weekend. So I believe that puts me back here at the end of the regular season. So we'll have um, a season to remember. Maybe we'll remember some guys. Gary Price was like the 46th Canadian to uh, to suit up for Montreal this year. So um, maybe we'll do some remembering some guys. Um, I'll be in Boston for um, PAX East. Very excited. Um hanging out with some friends, looking at some video game stuff, looking forward to it. Um, thanks again for listening. If you like this episode, share it with, with, with a Habs fan. Tell a Habs fan that you liked it. Uh, that would mean a lot to me. Um, a lot of the positive um, support that I've received has been by virtue of a lot of my friends um, supporting my work. I'm very thankful for of it. Um, my, my friends, uh, Laura and Scott at uh, Locked on Canadians. They've been big supporters of mine. Um, I really appreciate just about anybody that listens to this show. So thanks for listening. Um, you can follow me at Maybe It's Ian on Twitter, at Rabbit Hounds for the blog. Um, check the description for links to things I mentioned in the show. I don't know what I'm going to put down there. I don't think I talked about much. Oh, maybe the NHLPA thing. Now I'm angry about it again. Um, the music you heard at the beginning of the show and are hearing now is Inside by Fred Mugg. Check the description for a link to his Bandcamp page and listen to the rest of his stuff, including a brand new six-track album called Expedition. All right, guys, take care. I'll talk to you at the end of the season. All right, bye.